Mark chapter 1, verses 9 to 15. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from the heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. This is the word of the Lord. Well, before we start our uh, time of sermon, I just want to highlight that apparently last week we had a a birthday in our midst. And uh, uh, Barbara Handy, is this correct? Did you have a birthday this week? I'm not allowed to ask. But happy birthday, Barbara. Happy birthday. May God bring you joy and blessings throughout this next year. May you be healthy and may your family be filled with happiness and joy. And may all your problems be fixed by the Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. So would you pray with me now as we enter into our time? Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for, we thank you for the witness of those who've studied your Bible and studied your faith and followed Jesus so faithfully for so many years. And Lord, we just pray that as we come to you this morning, that you will use this time in our lives, that you will draw us near to you, and that you will shape us to be like Jesus. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So I remember a time when Claire, my 12-year-old, was three. Um, every kid has their own different things, but I think every family has somebody who who's, could change their name from whatever their name to actually, right? There was a time where, where Claire, uh, actually, 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 so much that I already I started calling her, hey, actually, you want to come over here? It's, it's really great when a three-year-old is correcting you, actually. And at first, it was cute. At first. And then shortly after, we kind of had to have some, some lessons on like, okay, it was cute. We used to laugh, and now we're not laughing, and we don't want you to be the actually kid. Because uh, in life that's going to hinder your relationships, right? Well, it makes me think of the Gospel of Mark a little bit because if you read through the Gospel of Mark, if you just start reading and reading and through it and the whole thing, you'll start to hear Mark, he doesn't say actually, but he says immediately. Immediately this happened. Immediately that happened. Immediately this happened. It's very dramatic. But one of the other things you'll recognize about Mark is that he, um, he's not a preacher, because he uses very few words to get his point across. <laughs> Olga, why are you laughing so hard? <laughs> oh, oh, well, there's a le- who said that? Who said that? Don't. Yes, there is a lesson in there. 
But so if you'll notice, we had six verses read today, six verses, three distinct stories of six verses. We have the baptism of Jesus in three verses. We have a two to come up, uh, that's or seven verses. Two for the testing of Jesus. Two for the whole story about Jesus being in, tested in the desert, tempted in the desert. And then the beginning of his ministry. All in this one little short passage. All set up with different moments of urgency. Different moments of immediacy. Because immediately Jesus went about something. Immediately the Holy Spirit did this. Immediately he was sent so I think it's interesting, and we need to remember that any time that we're encountering Jesus through the gospel of Mark, we have to remember his urgency. That is not just um, stylistic choice. It is not mere preference. There's a, an impact. There is a power to it, which we will discuss here this morning. Mark's vision doesn't come through dialogical um, uh, sophistication, but through urgency, and it comes through an apocalyptic framing of Jesus' baptism and temptation and inaugural preaching here. So if you've ever been around sermons for very long, you might occasionally hear the word apocalyptic thrown out. Does anybody here have like a good working definition of apocalyptic? Is that one of those conversation words that you use all the time? Like at dinner today, are you going to be like, oh, yes, and the, can you pass the apocalyptic potatoes? I, no. By the way, that would be a misuse of the word if you're, if you're thinking, oh, I'm going to try it later. <laughs> Don't do that one. But apocalyptic is a form, it's a genre of literature that was kind of popular in between the two Testament periods. What is apocalyptic literature? It's a type of Jewish and early Christian literature that contains visions and contains revelations from God concerning the immediate, the imminent coming of the end of the age and the start of the final advent of God's kingdom. You see, it was special writings in a special genre to reveal what God is about or is doing now. And it's almost always concerned with a few different kind of ideas. The term apocalyptic itself comes from Greek word that means a revelation or a disclosure. So when people write in apocalyptic ways, they're trying to disclose something that they may not have the words for or the ideas. They're trying to reveal a vision about what God is doing that they're trying to communicate with a sense of immediacy. Apocalyptic is applied to many parts of an Old Testament, uh, some of Joel, some of Amos, and the prophet Zechariah, definitely in Daniel. Um, and then there's small portions of the New Testament where they're slightly apocalyptic, or then the great apocalypse is the book of Revelation at the end. I think everybody's Christian life, or at least a lot of people, as they journey through their Christian life, they, ha they come through their uh, revelation phase, shall I say, where they get really excited about it. And then they try to figure out what is being said. And then they kind of get less excited because they find it's really hard to figure out what's being said when you start reading about the revelation of John. Why? Because it's speaking in apocalyptic language. What does it mean? Do we take it literally? How literally? What literally? What does this mean? How do we deal with these visions and these bowls and these scepters and these, all these different things, these beasts and these angels and this fantastical world? If the directors of Willy Wonka decided to make a, a sequel but using Revelation as a text, it would be magnificently visual and very bizarre. Because what they were trying to reveal is a world that they cannot use normal words for to express what doesn't 
typically happen. They start to show the break-in of two different worlds, the earthly world that we know and the heavenly world that is to come. Apocalyptic literature, um, while it existed, it, was un, it, it didn't last too long. It has about a four or five hundred year window of, of common usage. And there's much diversity amongst apocalyptic writings, most of which are not in our canon of the New Testament or Old Testament or even the apocryphal writings. But nevertheless, they are, there are certain general features that we can look at when we are reading apocalyptic literature. Certain characteristics that they almost all seem to have a few of. The presence of visions and revelations is almost mandatory. Contrasting the present evil age and the coming end times eschatological age, that's almost uh, almost a given. Often there's a pessimism about the present age with with an optimism concerning the age to come. There's usually references and allusions to mythology or numerology or animal symbolism. Uh, the idea of unity of history and a goal towards which history is moving is often found in these apop- apocalyptic fragments and, and, and whole writings. There's a, a, very often this is where they develop the ideas about life after death, especially resurrection, resurrection of the righteous and the life to come. And the judgment of the wicked is often absolutely tied into apocalyptic writings. And usually there's some kind of a transcendent figure, the one who's the who's, who's the, uh, the, the fulcrum, the point of, of contact that's making the end of the old age and the beginning of the new. So in today's passage, we can see some apocryphal writings. We can see some um, apocryphal characteristics. Let's walk through them a little bit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And just as he was coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens torn apart and the spirit descended upon him like a dove. Over there, verse 10. The heavens were torn apart. They didn't just open. They were rendered. They were torn. They were schismed. And it was, it's, like the, it's like a portal between the two worlds. It's, there's, there's a world that's just opening up. One world that you cannot see or have access to has now just entered and opened. And the dove came down and rested upon Jesus. And then in verse 11, 10 and 11, the fact that the, the, the dove came down upon him, and then a voice came from the heavens. You are my son, the beloved. With you I am well pleased. I always have to resist the temptation to try to lower my voice when I read that. Because that's the spirit of what we're trying to get, is the fact that there's a voice unlike one that you would hear. A voice from the heavens saying, this is my son, my beloved, in whom I am well pleased. It is not a normal conversation, communication. It's apocalyptic, showing the the, the divide of the two worlds, and here is the person who's going to bring it about. In verse 12, the Spirit of God is, is present and temporarily active. You see in verse 12, and the Spirit immediately, there's, there's Mark being Mark, The Spirit immediately drove him out to the wilderness. It didn't just send him. It didn't just suggest. It drove him out. That urgency, that immediately, that once, the fact that he was driven. Some of the translations I've looked at, they drove, they sent, and one translated it pushed. The Spirit pushed him out into the wilderness. Why did he go to the wilderness? 
He was in the wilderness for 40 days and tested by Satan. Again, in these apocalyptic literatures, the, 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 the role of Satan is much more uh, personal. Often, sometimes, uh, Satan in the, in the Old Testament, is, the, that, that word is used, it just means adversary. But here in this apocalyptic literature, it's personified into the character that we now think of when we think of Satan. And Satan was testing, and Satan was challenging. And in, in others, you get this whole dialogue of what they did with the back and the forth and the quoting of the scripture and the temptation, but not with Mark. He was in the wilderness for 40 days, tested. He was with the wild beasts, and the angels waited upon him. There was a battle for the life and the soul of Jesus in this time. That's all we get. That's all we get, but there's a, it's dramatic. These scenes are a contrast between the evil age of the present and the coming eschatological age because of this man, Jesus. Verse 13, the testing. We get no account of those temptations, but the peril that Jesus faced was indeed timely. Now, once he passes through that, the, the, the apocalyptic language still comes through in verse 14. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee proclaiming the good news and saying, the time is fulfilled. Verse 15, the time has come. By the way, the time is fulfilled. The time has come. It, it isn't a mere chronology. It isn't merely, oh, the date on the calendar that has been set has, has now arrived. No, it's that the season is now ripe. This is the moment. This is the decisive time and place. This is the, the D-Day, for lack of a better term. The time has come. Therefore, verse 15, what is our response? What is a suitable response to all this coming of the person of Jesus the one who came and was baptized in the heavens tore apart. The one who, as he was coming up out of the water, the, the spirit of the dove fell upon him, and the voice from heavens cried out and declared who he was. The, the one who went and wrestled and faced the evil one and came out victorious after days of testing and threat and peril. What is our response? Repent and believe the good news. This is our challenge. This is our challenge when we read Mark, when we enter into this time of Lent. Lent, someone told me like, oh, Ash Wednesday and Lent, it's not in the Bible. Yeah, you're right, sure. But it is kind of a good season that the church has done for years and years to help form our lives to be in the image of Christ. So they took that 40 days of tempting in the wilderness and they spread it out over six days a week, not Sunday, so they backed up 40 days from Easter to the Wednesday before. And that's how we have this time, this season of Lent. What do we do with Lent? I didn't grow up in a church that did anything with Lent. We just went right along with whatever the passage was being preached, and we sang songs about Jesus, and we paid it no mind. But some of you have grown up with Lent, and maybe it's a time, it's a season where you choose to forsake something. Maybe it's a time where you choose to give up something. Maybe it's a time where you choose to do an extra special Bible study or a special prayer time. Or maybe you gather with a group of people to have a unique journey. All of those are wonderful ideas. But when we're looking at it through the lens of Mark's gospel, Mark's rendering of this coming of Jesus, David Jacobson said, I think that this Mark 
that I think this Mark, that Mark's apocalyptic vision of the temptation of Jesus disrupts our meager Lenten practice, at least in mainline churches that I've both pastored and frequented. Mark's temptation is not just leading us from a chocolate to a temporarily non-chocolate existence for seven weeks. I love that. I really, I really quoted him just to say that. Mark's temptation is not just leading us from a chocolate to a temporarily non-chocolate existence for seven weeks. It calls us, rather, to envision a kind of holy disruption grounded in the longing for God to set things right. The urgency, the immediacy, the the drama of Mark's account calls us to envision the kind of holy disruption grounded in the longing for God to set things right. So what is a typical Lenten practice? What is appropriate? Is it merely just helping develop discipline in your life? For the record, I am here to to say, if you need to give up chocolate for seven weeks, give it up. If you need to give up your cell phone, oh, now I'm starting to hit home. If you give up TV, if you give up coffee, I used to be a smart aleck and say, I gave up Lent for, anyway. It's okay to have disciplines. It's okay to have seasons where you're trying to to better some things about your spiritual life. Sometimes we just use Lent as a way to use it as a self-help to get ourselves healthier. I don't know. Has Lent become just another healthy living technique? I mean, if it is, maybe we're missing out on what Lent could be, what it should be. Maybe we're taking something good and just calling it Lent, when in fact those are just things that are good, that might better our lives. Giving up caffeine for seven weeks. Oh, now I'm getting real personal. Who wants to give up their coffee for seven weeks? I'm getting some cross looks, mostly from my wife. I'm not looking at her. See, I think it's what Mark is calling for. This is more than that. Jacobson continues, but Mark's Jesus won't have it. He comes with the gospel of God. And he points away from himself, trusting that the longing for God to break through the heavens means both change for us and change with us. The idea that we are God's people here on earth. Why are we saved? Why are we called by his name? Why are we gathered and filled with his spirit? Why are we being cleansed and changed and sanctified? Is it so that we can get into heaven a little bit cleaner? Is it so that we can sit there and think that we are just a little bit writer? Writer? You get the idea. Somewhere along the way, and there's a history to it, and I can give you the history, but I'll spare you today. Somewhere along the way, we have gotten used to taking the whole gospel of Jesus and reducing it down to a get-out-of-hell-free card and a get-into-heaven path. And that the goal of who we are and what we do is just to get out of trouble and into this divine sense of glory that we really don't have our mind wrapped around. But I think That is such a narrow and small slice if we are just saying that we are Christians so that we can get into heaven. The pearly gates, the eternal hymnal worship service, clouds and white robes. 
Watch any TV or movies production of what they see heaven to be, what they see, what it means to be in Christ. And often it's so limited and it's so ethereal. It's so otherworld that it's disconnected from the actual gospel. Mark's Jesus won't have it. He comes with the gospel pointing to God, pointing away from himself and trusting that as we long to see God break through the heavens means both change for us and change with us. Romans chapter 8, and forgive me for reading a long section of Romans 8, but Romans 8 can help lead us to understanding who we are in Christ and what we are to be doing here. Therefore, now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to deal with sin. He condemned the sin in the flesh so that the just requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. All that we can reduce down to, sweet, I'm, I'm forgiven and now I live uh, uh, clean, wonderful. But now we must live. And to what ends do we live? Were we just saved so that we could say we are? Or are we saved so that we can now walk with God in the spirit, not under the condemnation of the law? For all who, verse 14, I'm skipping ahead. For all who are led by the spirit of God are children of God. Again, if you knew who we were before Christ, we are enemies of God. We are distant and we are far. And now we are not only friends, but we are children. We are adopted in. We are heirs with Christ. There's verses in the New Testament that tell us that we will reign with Christ in the coming kingdom. We will rule with Christ. I don't know of a greater sense of promotion than being going from being an enemy of the state to being included and now being a co-heir with. I honestly can't even wrap my mind around what that will mean. But we are children of God, verse 15. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received a spirit of adoption. And when we cry, Abba, Father, when we cry, Daddy, Father, it is that very spirit, the Holy Spirit, bearing witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ. And if we, in fact, suffer with him, we may also be glorified with him. Everybody was cool up until I said suffer. Like, this sounds great. We're going to be with God. We're co-heirs with God. We are, hmm. I thought Jesus did the suffering. Yeah, I think that at the very heart of this passage in the Romans 8 is that We, his church, are called to find ourselves in the places of pain and suffering in this world. And we aren't called to come and take dominion in the name of Jesus. The taking of dominion is Jesus' job. But we are called to stand there, link arms with the hurting, link arms with the oppressed, link arms with those who are suffering, and lament, and to intercede, and to cry out, Abba, Father. 
Verse 18 continues, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is about to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revelation of the children of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but by the will of those who subjected to it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its enslavement to decay and will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning together as it suffers together the pains of labor. And not only creation, but we ourselves, who have been the fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly while we wait for adoption, redemption of our bodies. Okay, there's a lot that just happened there. But if you've ever read this passage and heard about the fact that nature... Creation itself is crying out with the groaning of labor pains, longing for the day when the kingdom of God will reign back on her lands. I see, it's this kind of passage that reminds us we aren't saved just to get into heaven. Some pearly gates, some song where I'll fly away and sing songs for eternity. No, we are being saved to be part of a new creation, a new heaven, and a new earth, the redemption of the earth that's crying out to God for healing. Look at verse 19 there, what it said. For creation waits with eager longing for the revelation of the children of God. The pains of creation suffering under the futility of brokenness and sin, are waiting for the children, the children of God. To be honest, if I had been writing this, I, 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 if I had been predicting, sometimes I like to do that. We put the subtitles up on the, on the shows, and I like to read right along with them, and it, my kids really love it. They think it's wonderful when I read the, the lines of every actor. And sometimes when I try to put my own accents and voices to it, it's just a, it's a tender moment that we have. Dad, stop! And then there's times where I start to get a little bit ahead of the script and I start to try to predict what the next line's going to be. And sometimes I'm right because a lot of these shows that they watch are really predictable shows. It's like that sitcom that we've all seen, even though it's new. But we've seen it before, haven't we? Because the lines are all the same. I would expect Paul to have the line that says, for the creation waits in eager longing for the revealing of Jesus. He says the children of God. In this very crucial crux passage of, of the book of Romans, Paul is telling us that creation is waiting for the revelation of us as children of God. We're no longer living under the law, but are living under the Spirit. Who are no longer living in the powers of sin, but are living in the powers of the Spirit. Who are no longer the, the, the objects of God's wrath, but are now the healers and the presence of God's kingdom here on earth. Somehow, we, together, as this band of followers, if you look around, if you, some of you might feel a little awkward if you stop and took, take a look around right now, but we, together, are going to be part of the plan of healing bringing healing to this earth that's crying out. Many of you men are too old to have been allowed to be in the labor room. I've been in there five times. I've heard labor cries. If you've never had that experience, it's so beautiful and terrifying. Where 
those sounds come from and yet to bring forth what? To bring forth life. And Paul says, this is what the earth and this is what we feel when we long for God to interrupt, to break through and bring about goodness, to bring about healing, to bring about justice and love and mercy. This is way bigger than giving up chocolate. For in hope, in hope we were saved. Verse 28. Get ready, this is a little controversial. We know that all things work together for the good of those who, sorry. That's how it's typically translated. We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purposes. But N.T. Wright is arguing that that's a bad translation because what, what we, how we ought to translate it is we know that all things work together for good through those who love God. We are not merely passive recipients of God's providence. We are the active hands that God works through to bring about his goodness, to bring about his mercies, to bring about his gospel good news, And first, for right now, our job is to stand with the suffering and suffer with them. Our job is to stand with the suffering and lament and cry out and intercede on behalf of them. Our job is to be the hands and the feet and allow the Spirit of God to help us to bring a word of healing to a world that seems to be ripping itself apart on the hinges. Our job is to be salt and bring bring perseverance and bring goodness. Our job is to be light and to expose the deeds of darkness in a world because we know that all things work together for the good through those who love God and are called according to his purpose. There's other passages. I know I just spent a lot of time in Romans 8. We could have looked at Ephesians 2 where we take a look at how God took the Jewish people who are near and the, and the, and the, and the Gentile people who are far and out of them made a new humanity. Not just a restored humanity, a a new humanity God's making. One that's going to proclaim and reveal his artwork. We are his artwork for the world to see. I love walking by here at night and I see the light that's set to shine on that back stained glass. Because it's so beautiful to walk by and see this beautiful piece of art. This town loves art, doesn't it? And it should, because art shows us windows into the, to the human soul, into the human way. That's why we love music so much. That's why we love paintings. That's why we love the uh, poetry, because it says things that we can't just say through normal prose and language. And God is making us into his artwork, according to Ephesians 2. Or we can look at 2 Corinthians 5 and talk about how we are all new creations in Christ. The old has gone, the new has come. We are new living Now, I'm just going to ask. You don't have to answer. This is rhetorical. Do we always feel like we're new creations in Christ, or do we feel same old, same old? This is where faith and hope comes in. To remember that that which was same old, same old is now same, well, it's been made new. We're new creations. Even as our physical bodies get older and start to see less and feel less and break down, The spirit within us can be renewed and transformed and made into that which is great. Or we could take a look at Revelation, the apocalyptic epic that tells of God's 
Um, what God did to restore, to renew, and to recreate creation through his image bearers, through us, his church, his bride. God chose us to be his vessels of reconciliation. God chose us to be his ministers, to be his healers. It kind of recasts Lent, doesn't it, just a little bit? This 40 days, it's not just to have a nice Bible study. It's not just to prepare our own personal sense of hope, which is good. It is good to renew your personal sense of hope in the resurrection, but it's more. It's good to develop some sense of disciplines in your life because if, as we learn to live disciplined life where we are reliant on the Holy Spirit, we are now a more useful vessel to bring about God's healing to those around us. But it's not just for the sake of discipline. It's so that you and I can be conduits for God's grace and mercy so that we might be changed and be the one who changes who God works through. So it's okay to give up your chocolate. It's okay to start an exercise program. It's, okay to dis- it's really okay to disconnect your phones at night. These are all good. But let's not miss the point that whatever Jesus was doing on earth, it was apocalyptic in nature. The old has gone. The new is here now. So let us, what? Let us repent, for the kingdom of God is near. Lord, we pray that you would help us this Lenten season. Take off our blinders that we might see. Unclog our ears so that we might hear. Give us clarity so that we might understand the world around us and not get caught up in the petty arguments of of politics and, and division, but that we might see clearly how you have placed us here to bring about a peace, a moment, a word of healing to a world that's being rendered. That you might allow us to bring a word of grace in a world that knows hatred. That you might equip us to be a living sign of transformation because you have loved us and you have transformed us and through us you want to bring good news to others. So Lord, help us to repent and help us to be open and help us to walk with you this season together. In Christ we pray, amen.